You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Whether you need a battery for your truck or a battery for your trail camera or a specialized battery for your range finder or a crazy toy that you bought for your kids, Interstate Batteries has got you covered. Stop into a local Interstate Battery retail store, talk with a specialist, get the battery that you need, and go on about your day. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Fred Eichler, host of Everything Eichler, is on the show. We discuss preparation for season as an outfitter, his archery practice regiment, his North American Super Slam, and more. I hope you enjoy the show. You are listening to Tales from the Field, presented by Outdoor Edge. Stories, tips, tactics, and in-depth conversations coming to you from industry leaders. Let's get into the show. And today we have Fred Eichler on the podcast. How's it going, Fred? Absolutely great, Zach. How are you doing, sir? I am. I'm doing excellent. Um, today the sun's shining. It's actually quite hot outside, and uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you. So thanks for taking the time out. Hey, man, it's my pleasure. We've been gearing up for season here as well. I've got uh, two boys on tractors. Both my both my sons are on tractors today. And last night I was checking out uh, some elk at about 300 of them in one of the fields. And I took some cool pictures of that. So I'm getting pretty amped up. Antelope season starts August 15th here. So it's, uh, man, it's coming down to the countdown now, buddy. I'm, I'm getting excited. I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy store. You're just chomping at the bit. I don't know about you, but I, I can't believe that it's already basically August. I don't know where the rest of the summer went, but man, it's, it's here. <laughs> it's unreal man i tell you it gets i heard a good analogy one time it says uh i said man it just seems like time goes quicker as i get older somebody said yeah it's kind of like uh toilet paper the closer you get to the bottom of the roll it goes faster and i was like wow that's an interesting analogy but yeah i guess that's true (laughs) yeah Uh, there's a little gym for you life's like a roll of toilet paper there you go (laughs) closer closer you get to the end the faster it goes (laughs) you know so Obviously, you guys have been running uh, a successful outfitting business for many years now. And, you know, obviously, you're not taking five hunters. You're taking, I I believe, somewhere around upwards of uh, 180, correct? 
Yes, sir. For a little bit of everything. That's whitetail, mule deer, elk, bear, antelope, mountain lion, and turkey here in Colorado. That's just incredible. So what does what does preseason preparation look like when you're when you're preparing for something that big? You know, once again, preparing for five people to come over the next four months is completely different than preparing for 180. <laughs> yes, sir. It's it's uh it's full on crazy. I mean, what's great is it's a it's a family business, so pretty much the whole family's involved. Um, all three of the boys are are working and helping getting ready as well. But yeah, that's a lot of the stuff that people don't see. And uh, you know, even for areas, um, you know, I'm permitted on 1.3 million acres of wilderness area. Uh, and besides that, we hunt. Uh, I think it's 12 private ranches now as well. So including our place. So it's it's a nonstop. I mean, we scout or, or doing something for hunting pretty much all year round. Um, whether it's improving habitat with water sources or planting agriculture, um, things like that to help draw animals in, um, you know, and just trying to make more bedding areas or, you know, more open areas where the grass will come up better. Uh, and that's not to mention ground blinds, tree stands, tripod stands. I mean, we've got permanent muddy blinds out. We've got, you know, the pop-up muddies. We've got millennium tripods, millennium ladders, millennium tree stands. We, we, we just go nonstop. And not only are we setting those up and then taking them down at the end of season, but we're also constantly clearing shooting lanes, um, you know, scouting, you know, as, as, as things change or, you know, droughts or things like that, certain areas are better than others. So I could tell you that it's honestly nonstop. I mean, even antelope, I was talking to a client the other day and he said, well, this is probably your slow season. I said, no, sir. We, we got, uh, I said, the boys were out with a couple of guides and uh, they set up 20 antelope lines yesterday. I said, they started at about five in the morning and you know, it's pretty constant. Yeah. I, it just, it just, it, it, that, and like you say that, that's all the stuff that, that the people don't, don't see. Um, And, you know, potentially, almost take for granted, but at the same point, I guess when you're going with an outfitter, that's, that's a portion of what you're paying for. Um, but it, it doesn't definitely doesn't take away from how much work it is. <laughs> no, that's, that's exactly right. I've got, you know, I'm proud of the fact that in 28 years, you know, we, we take on average about 80% of our guys are repeat clients every year. So, you know, they kind of know what to expect and, you know, they've hunted with us before and, and we know them, we know what kind of shape they're in. For example, you know, I've had guys call me on the phone. They're like, well, what are my odds of killing an elk? And I'm like, well, not to be mean, but if you tell me you're five, two and 300 pounds, I said, I'm going to tell you, it's going to be tougher than if you tell me you're, you know, five, two and, uh, you know, 110, so right. it's, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a big difference, you know, do you, you know, are you going to, are you going to be practiced up? Are you efficient with your weapon, whether it's a bow, a muzzleloader, a rifle, handgun, crossbow, whatever it is you're coming out with, um, you know, can you hike? Uh, are you willing to sit all day? You know, I'm, I'm constantly surprised at how many guys just want to hunt two or three hours in the morning or two or three hours in the evening. But, um, you know, we're, me and the guides are pretty much, we're, we're more along the lines of let's, let's hunt all day. Let's, let's do everything we can to increase your odds, um, you know, of success. And, you know, that even carries over to lunchtime, for example. Uh, you know, I've got some guys that, which is fine. That's, if that's what they want to do, we're, we're certainly happy to do that. But a lot of guys, it's about the camaraderie and they want to come back at lunch and have a nice, nice lunch or maybe take a nap. And, you know, I'm that guy that's like, Hey, 
maybe we should go sit in this water hole um, middle of the day and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Or we can have the cook make us some chili and take it to go. But we could sit in that water hole and we'll, we may only have a 10 or 15% chance of a bull coming in or a bear or deer in the middle of the day. But, man, that's 10 or, that's 10 or 15% more of a chance than we have sitting at the uh, bunkhouse watching the sportsman's channel and watching somebody else on, you know, let's, I say we get out there and, and, uh, and increase our odds every way we can. Yeah. And I, I think it, uh, it goes without saying that it, that it definitely takes a special person to, to be a guide. Cause I, you know, there's been times when just literally I was helping a friend or whatever, you know, and, and we look over, we see an animal or something like that. And I'm in full on go mode and I start going, I'm like, well, where'd they go? (laughs) Oh boy, we're going to have to slow her down. But you know, and I'm just kind of tying that into maybe a hunter that is like, Hey, let's go back to the, to the lodge and have lunch. And I could see where somebody with your frame of mind or mine is like, no, let's, let's just take our, our lunch bag, you know, with the tuna fish or whatever the heck we got. And let's go sit out there and eat it. Yeah. We're going to relax, but let's eat it where we have an opportunity. Um, as opposed to let's go hang out and, and eat at the lodge or, or the, you know, the wall tent or whatever it might be. And, and I could assume, uh, imagine that it, every once in a while you kind of just find yourself biting your tongue. Like, I guess if that's what they want to do, then I guess we got to let them do that. <laughs> oh yeah, man. It's funny. You know, and I'm a people person. I like people, especially people that like what I like. And it seems like most hunters and I'm a little biased, uh, but they seem like just better people. You know, they, they seem more family or, you know, family oriented, you know, you, you, you we're like very like-minded, um, you know, politic wise, uh, you know, just, you know, it, it, it just seems like we have a lot in common, um, but it does crack me up. We take, you know, guys from all walks of life um, to, uh, you know, to all types of physical abilities or disabilities. You know, we've taken guys in wheelchairs or guys that had all kinds of different handicaps that we had to adjust for. Uh, but that's kind of what I love about it. I mean, I look at it as a challenge every day. And, man, I just I would way rather be outside than inside. So, yeah, I'm that guy that's pretty high energy and and usually going Let's go outside. Let's go. Let's go glass this. Let's go glass this pole. I got a spotting scope. Let's go check this out or let's go do that. And some of my favorite hunts. And as you know, the West is really unique this way. Um, Like I have guys that come out every year from Texas and those guys will have four or five tags in their pocket. And I love that because it's just a blast. Now, don't get me wrong. We wear each other out. I mean, we're exhausted by the end of the five day hunt, but They'll come out with an elk tag because that's over the counter down here, um, a deer tag, and they usually draw every other year. Sometimes we'll get landowner tags, but they'll have an elk tag, a deer tag, a bear tag, which is over the counter, a turkey tag, which is over the over the counter, um, and then an antelope tag, which is over the counter. So they'll have four, sometimes five tags. So we'll start out the morning, and I'm like, okay, let's start out, and we're going to be looking for elk, bear, deer. Then we're going to go out east and we're going to chase antelope around for a few hours in the middle of the day. <laughs> then we're going to go hang out, uh, check out some fields for turkeys, maybe a little spot and stalk turkey. And then in the evening, we're going to go back out after elk and bear and deer. Yes. So those days are, you know, the days are long in the fall. But when those guys have a bunch of tags and and it's just nonstop action, man, that's that's one of my favorite hunts is when guys have multiple opportunities. There's a more the more options you have, you know, I tell guys that all the time. If you're coming out on an elk hunt, man, if you can get a deer tag, 
might as well get one or let's get a bear tag or a turkey tag because, you know, it always seems like I'm having opportunities or my clients are at the animals you don't have a tag for all the time. So I try and eliminate that. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And, and I would assume that you probably roll that over into your personal hunting because I know I do. You know, I mean, I figure if I'm going to some state somewhere and I have a tag, if I have the time um, I'm going to try and get another tag that while I'm there, I mean, why not? <laughs> exactly. Small game, a rabbit squirrels. It doesn't matter. Uh, man, I want to take some meat home. I want to have some fun experiences and, you know, dang, let's, let's, let's have a good time and let's have some opportunities. And, you know, I came out to hunt. Let's, let's do some hunting. So I'm with you. I, I, I just think that's, that's a great way to have a great time out in the field and, and doing some research, figuring out what's in season, what's not, what you could possibly get tags for, man, that's, you know, to me, that's, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. So in your, in your preparation for, for the year, what is, what's one of the most challenging hurdles, you know, the biggest hurdle that you have to overcome to be ready for, for the upcoming season? Man, great question. A, a lot of it's just, uh, you know, it's it's very weather related. Um, you know, it's like fishing. I've been fishing before with guides that, uh, you know, the weather kicks up and you got, you know, huge waves and it's raining and they look at you and I just feel for them because they're like, man, we're going to go fishing, but we're pretty sure we're not going to catch anything. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, the tough thing is there's days like that hunting, you know, I've, I've uh, you know, I've, I've taken guys out when, you know, we had a huge front moving in and nothing, you know, even, you know, my cows and my horses are laying down or they're, you know, standing over in some, you know, it's a brush. I'm like, man, I know nothing's going to be moving, but we're going to have to make something happen or, or at least get them out there and, and see what we can do. So to me, sometimes the challenges are, you know, weather, because there's sometimes it doesn't matter how experienced you are, you know, how good the property is you're hunting or what's going on. You just can't fight the weather and, you know, a full moon combined with a real rough weather pattern. Boy, there's times that you can just, you know, you just look at a guy and go, man, we're going to do everything we can do, but it's going to be tough. And so I try and be honest and tell guys that, and you know, if that's the situation and, you know, sometimes by being out there, you end up getting lucky. So I've had times where I genuinely thought, man, it's probably not going to happen, but it does. But I think by being prepared and being optimistic, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, you know, by, by not stumbling through the woods or, you know, by only, by not making half-ass setups, by taking every single setup seriously, whether I'm trying to call an elk or whether we're setting up on some agriculture or, you know, a trail back and forth between bedding and, and areas that they're feeding, by taking the time and, you know, doing the same setup or taking the same care to have a good setup, watching the wind, the sun direction, and all the variables that I can control. So if an animal does come by, we're ready. Well, you know, I, I, I try and do that. But yeah, that's probably that's probably one of the biggest challenges. And then, you know, the other one would be, you know, people's physical fitness, like we talked about, you know, I, I take some guys that it takes them a few days to get adjusted. You know, they may go from Florida or Michigan or New York and, you know, are almost sea level. And I live at 7,000 feet and we may hunt a guy anywhere from 5,000 up to, you know, timberline. So, you know, sometimes there's some physical limitations that you have to watch out for. And, and then the other one is just uh, making sure they're efficient and ready with their equipment. So we try and make, you know, make sure everybody takes a few practice shots, 
not only so they're confident, uh, but so we're confident in their abilities and we kind of know, okay, you know, this guy's effective range is 20 yards. We shouldn't ask him to try and take a shot at 30 uh, with a bow or his effective range with a rifle is 200. So we shouldn't ask him to take a shot at 300. Um, you know, those are some of the challenges that I think all guides face. And, you know, I, I kind of look at it as it's a, it's a fun challenge and it's different every single time. And, and then trying to figure out what the client wants. Uh, you know, do they, are they here more because it's a family hunt? Maybe it's three generations. You know, we have multiple times where it's, you know, a, a grandfather, a father and and a son, and, and they really do want to spend the time hunting together. And I may tell them, Hey, it's going to be tougher to call a bull in with all three of you standing there. Um, right. Or, you know, it may be tougher to do this, that, but, if that's what that experience is for them, then I'm going to try and customize it to where they get the most out of that experience. And, and likewise, I appreciate it when outfitters do the same for me. I mean, you know, my dad still guides with me at 73 here in Colorado for elk, but when we go hunting somewhere, I may tell the guide, Hey, I don't really care if I get anything. It's more about my dad or it's more about us being together. And I appreciate it when, uh, when guides are willing to adjust, you know, adjust that for me as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and I, you know, to relate with that, I have a couple buddies from, you know, Georgia and Pennsylvania and stuff like that. And much like you said, even if, even if they have a fairly good fitness level there, when they come here and we're all of a sudden go walk up and we're hunting, you know, tree line or whatever at 11,000 feet or 12,000, who knows, it's just hard on them. <laughs> it's just, it's just hard to breathe physically for them and, um, give them, give them a couple days, just like you're talking. And before you know it, uh, they're, they're doing much, much better. Um, and that's, I don't know, I guess maybe, maybe you and I are fortunate or it's something that maybe I personally take for granted, but I'm like, yeah, I, I can feel like I breathe pretty good. And then they get up there and they're like, <laughs> the air is so thin. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And even the equipment, you know, the equipment wise, you know, uh, you know what a guy may take to a white tail tree stand, um, where he's only going to walk a hundred yards from his truck or, you know, for most hardcore whitetail hunters, 400 yards or, you know, to be a half mile, you know, to be from their ATV or vehicle or house uh, versus what you may carry into a wilderness area in your backpack uh, to hunt elk where you're a long ways from anybody. Well, that's a different set of equipment. And, you know, going lightweight, uh, you know, there's things that I take whitetail hunting that I wouldn't dream of carrying in my pack or, you know, wearing on my belt if I'm going to go, uh, you know, go up in the mountains, you know, and that could vary from, you know, a handgun, you know, when I'm whitetail hunting, you know, I usually carry a lot, uh, you know, just for, just for safety or for anything you may run into or for signaling somebody. Uh, but when I'm, you know, out in mountain lion or black bear or even grizzly country, when I'm, you know, hunting areas where grizzly bears, brown bears are around, well, I may have, uh, you know, handgun with me all the time there, not only for my own protection, but, you know, to help, you know, protect the client if need be. And there's been times where a handguns, you know, uh, you know, I've gotten guys that were lost before and, you know, by firing around and, and, you know, in the dark and, you know, walk guys into me or vice versa where they were lost and they had a handgun, you know, I had a guy lost in a blizzard, not to get off on a tangent, but, you know, I had a handgun, I had a guy that was lost in a blizzard and, uh, he had gotten down out of his tree stand. Um, and he was like, I, I don't know where I'm at. I can't see 50 yards. I'm like, well, 
I can't see 50 yards either. And I'm trying to find you. <laughs> and, and I said, I knew we were in trouble because we were talking on the cell phone. And I, I said, we're yelling at each other so we can hear it. I said, I'm going to fire around. Tell me if you hear it. And so I crank around off in the air. And the guy's like, did you shoot yet? And I'm like, Oh no, (laughs) I'm not even close, you know? So that was, you know, I've had a, you know, a few pucker factors, but uh, you know, we finally, I finally got to where he heard me. And, and then the hysterical thing was, and here's how silly you can be when you're excited or nervous, but he finally heard me after 30 minutes, you know, me going different directions. I finally shut around. He goes, I heard it really faint. And I said, which direction? And he goes that way. And I'm like, okay, sorry, that didn't help you at all. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, he's like, I can't, I can't tell you which direction, but I heard it. So I'm like, all right. So I kept going and he's like, oh, it got louder, but you're parallel with me. I'm like, okay. So we finally got together, but you know, that's where a handgun, you know, it, it helped out in a pretty serious situation. So it's funny how the gear and what my guides or I'll carry with me can vary, you know, even to, you know, and, and, you know, we both work with outdoor edge, but even with equipment, like, you know, if I, if I shoot something and it's within, you know, or an area I can drive my truck to, well, heck man, I got the butcher kit in there with me and I've got a caper, a rib spreader, you know what I mean? I've got, I've got everything, everything I need, you know what I mean? A, A play knife, I can, you know, take that thing down easy. But when I'm up on the mountain, and I'm miles, you know, whether I'm horseback or just hiking and I'm miles from the vehicle. Well, man, I, you know, I may, I may just be carrying my, my razor light. <laughs> yeah. Know? The small one, you know, and you know, the other thing, lightweight and one thing I always carry, cause I tell guys, you know, even when you go lightweight, it's nice to have a few things, but like, you know, I'll have that little fold out flip and zip that little tiny lightweight saw. I mean, uh-huh. it weighs, you know, I don't know, probably two or three ballpoint pens. I mean, it's super lightweight, but I can cut shooting lanes or if I need to, you know, cut through the ribs because we're going to leave an animal and we need it to cool down. Well, I can take that and saw right through the sternum and, you know, keep keep that elk or deer or bear's chest, you know, nice and cool. So it, it's funny to me what I'll carry based on, on where and even the machete, like, and I, I know David, the owner, probably hates me to call it a machete. I know it's called the brush demon, but it looks like a machete. And that thing's handier than heck, man. I got one in my truck all the time just because it's, you know, man, when I'm clearing shooting lanes or I got to clear some brush around a cattle tank or if I'm setting up trail cameras, you know, which is a big part of what we do too. We have trail cameras all over the place, but I may pop up a stealth cam and, you know, I'll come back three weeks or two months later and the brush is growing up around it or tree limbs are causing it to give me a false trigger. I can go in there and clean those up lickety split. But you know, it's funny how equipment wise it varies based on where you're at. Yeah, I, I agree for sure. Um, from, from, you know, needing to take a pistol, uh, cause uh, you know, if I'm hunting, say, around Cheyenne, Wyoming or whatever, I very rarely take a pistol. Now, on the conversely, if I go up out of like Jackson Hole or Cody, Wyoming, I'll have a pistol with me, especially the the bears up there are hungry, man. They're, they're, they have been <laughs> snacking on some hikers like you couldn't believe. <laughs> I love it. I hope they keep doing it so they'll open a bear season like they should have a 
years ago. Oh yeah, they they you know and, and once again and I'm I'm completely fine with kind of kind of going around on topics that whatever we talk about I really am cuz anytime I I had a friend go up out of Cody Wyoming and in one morning he counted 9 to 11 grizzly bears. Dude, that's out of hand. And they're losing their fear of man too, which yeah. is that's why they're having so many encounters. Because they're not scared of them. Yeah, they don't care. Not that Christians <laughs> are like, ever scared, mm, but <laughs> dinner. <laughs> but yeah, I just he told me that, and I just thought to myself, "Wow, that like you say, that's just getting that's just getting a little bit out of hand." But no, it's the same with the wolves. We're fighting a big wolf here, wolf deal here in Colorado. It's just ridiculous. They're 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 literally they're trying to they what do they call it relocate or uh, um. Oh, there's a word for it, whatever. But they're trying to the uh, put wolves in Colorado, and I'm like, you you can't put something here that's already here. Like you guys are talking about, you know, <laughs> repopulating Colorado with wolves. We already have wolves, and they've been run over in I-70. You know, they're from the Yellowstone Pack. Wolves naturally spread out. We don't need you guys dropping any in here. And one of the reasons, you know, Colorado has such, you know, we have the largest elk herd of any state in the West. And one of the reasons is because we don't have to deal with a lot of the apex predators. Right. And I'm great with grizzly bears being around. That's terrific. They were, they're indigenous to the area. And if we have a few grizzly bears, that's great. But if they don't manage them, then it becomes a huge issue. And I know outfitters and hunters in Wyoming that, you know, have all kinds of issues and they're knocking the heck out of the elk herds and Yellowstone and all over the place and impacting the, the herds, which is in turn, impacting the revenue for that state. I mean, hunting's in the top five revenue streams for the state of Colorado. I think it's still in the top three. So, you know, why you would ever not manage an apex predator boggles my mind. And that's the issue. I I think a lot of it's a knee-jerk reaction of seeing what they've done in Idaho and Wyoming and, and other places where they put wolves, which I won't even get into the whole topic of it's a larger northern wolf that they're putting in, not even the indigenous wolf that was in the area. So, but besides that fact, if they were to put them in and agree to manage them, then that's one thing. But they they fight and fight to try and get these animals put in, and then they don't want to manage them, and they just wreck havoc. Not to mention, you know, the damage on livestock, you know, whether it's sheep or goats or cattle or horses or any of that stuff. It's just... A lot of people don't stop to think, you know, what, what they're doing. Yeah. And I, I think too, it's, I, it's, it's when you're, when you're not out there and you're not seeing it, it's almost hard to comprehend what is happening, you know, especially, especially somebody that may, you know, maybe from the outside, look at in, they're not, they're not paying attention to the numbers that the game and fish are putting out. And they're not paying attention to, um, you know, harvest reports and, and what, what, you know, the animal numbers increase and decline and all that kind of stuff. And they're just, they're just thinking, well, it'd be kind of cool to be able to take a picture of a grizzly bear. <laughs> yeah. Or the fact that, you know, or the fact that some of the anti-hunting groups are on record saying that they'd like to reintroduce wolves everywhere so that they knock the animal population back to non-huntable numbers. So, I mean, it's not like it's a big surprise what they're doing. It's it's unreal, and all of a sudden, somebody's going to have a problem with it when they start snatching up kids at bus stops. But until that, you know, it, it's it's just, it's unreal. 
California, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting all fired up, but I'll give you a prime example. California, they had a mountain lion season. Everything was hunky-dory. They were managing the mountain lions. Bunch of anti-groups got together. Fight, fight, fight. We don't need to kill mountain lions. So they made it illegal to hunt mountain lions in the state of California. Now, this is a state that's broke already. But what was the ramifications of that? The ramifications was the state of California had to hire a whole bunch of government trappers to kill nuisance mountain lions. Now, here's the part that they don't share. If you look at it, they're killing more mountain lions now than they were when there was a legal mountain lion season. The difference is hunters would pay to hunt mountain lions when there was a mountain lion season. And it, money would go to the state. Of course, now the state is paying government trappers that are killing these lions. And in most cases, the meat is always wasted. But the hides, for the majority of the time, don't get utilized at all either. So it's, it's, it's not about managing the animals. It's not about not killing mountain lions. If I was an anti-hunter and had that done, I would feel like an idiot. Because I would go, gee, I didn't want mountain lions killed. And now that there's not a hunting season... They're killing more of them, right? You know, it's, you know, you got you got to you got to look at it and go, man. I'm, you know, I, I failed. I failed in what I was trying to do. So people have to wake up and look at it. And I, I really encourage all the hunters to get involved. And you know, whether it's state organizations, uh, you know, that are protecting that, you know, big game forever, things like that. You know, stay informed and 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 get out there and vote because it's uh, man, it's 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 coming to a head and a lot of different things that are going to impact generationally your kids my kids our grandkids um because some of the poor management decisions that are being made yeah it's 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 sad to it's it's sad to be seeing it happen you know um but i think uh if is as long as we can keep pushing forward and try and continue to shed some sort of positive light on all of it you know especially hunting the good that hunters are doing um that you know yourself, myself, um, every individual hunter out there and influencers is as long as we can continue to shed the positive lights on hunting. Um, hopefully at least that can steer the, you know, sway it, sway the decisions in the right direction that, you know, hunting is a good thing. Hunting is helping hunting is there for, for a reason and not just to kill stuff and put antlers on the wall. You know what I mean? Right. And the good organic meat. I mean, look at oh. when the COVID thing went down and nobody could go to the grocery store. I love, Shoot, man, I, I, was, love you know, I had people coming over looking for elk steaks, you know, oh, we can't get anything in the grocery store. I, you know, can you ship stuff? You know, as, you know, all of a sudden people realize, wow, you know, the only people that aren't starving are the guys that are taking care of themselves, the men and women and kids that are out there, you know, shooting deer, shooting elk, shooting bear, antelope, whatever it is, frogs, ducks, you know, whatever it is. And they have food in their freezers that is good organic meat that they're utilizing. And that's why like David, you know, at outdoor edge, and I know, you know, the, the owner as well. And he, uh, he cracks me up, man, cause he is into it, but I love, this is a company that started out. I think it started out in his apartment with him putting stuff together and, you know, a couple little knives and now they're everywhere, but everything he did was based on helping hunters, fishermen and outdoorsmen, you know, be more efficient in the field, be able to take care of animals, have a sharp knife, have a good saw, you know, have, you know, you know, have a good machete, uh, have a good ax, you know, uh, you know, have equipment to enjoy what we all love to do. And David's one heck of a, of a meat processor himself. I mean, that guy, 
he's like my wife. When they get done with a carcass, man, a coyote will turn his nose up at it. There's nothing <laughs> left. I mean, you know, they're taking, uh, you know, they're taking everything off it. And, you know, that's, that's so important. And to pass that message and that heritage on to me, and that's what it's all about. And then, you know, having equipment that you can use in the field, I got to tell you, can I tell you a funny story? It's, 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 it's about one of the, it's about one of the, one of the things David came up with. It's called the chow pal. Absolutely. I'm sure you're familiar with that. That, And, you know, you look at stuff and you're like, man, that actually would be pretty handy. Cause I'm the guy that would like, I'd steal a fork from the kitchen or a spoon. And I, <laughs> Me too, I'd but take, I would take a plastic one that usually broke every time. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I can't take plastic ones anymore. Cause I'll roll over on them and they'll shatter. Yeah. Or I'm the guy that's trying to carve one, you know what I mean? Out of a piece of stick. But when you're above timberline, <laughs> that's kind of hard to do, you know? So I'm like, all right, cool. Chop house. So I like it. It's lightweight. You know, I was the guy that would steal that kitchen fork and my wife would find like, would find them cut in half because I was trying to shave every little bit of weight I could. But we were we were above Timberline and we were on a hunt this last fall. We were, literally we were camping out at about oh it was over twelve thousand feet, and we had some of those uh, you know mountain house meals that are super great because we had a few of those in the pack where you just heat up water. So I had to bust through ice because it was real cold and the little ponds were all frozen over and the the creek was frozen over. But I'm breaking through ice. Um, heating up water on my super lightweight stove because I'm trying to shave weight, you know, and uh, <laughs> cook this mountain house. And I'm over there eating and I have food all over my hand. Like I'm in there with the chow pal, but, you know, like anything, even regular forks, you're in there rooting in there to try and get the last of it because you're starving, you know. Uh-huh. And I look over, my wife has folded the spoon and the fork away from each other and she's holding one end of of the, I think it was a fork so she could get in there with the spoon and she, she has no food on her knuckles. Like she's extended it now to twice as long as the normal one. And I'm over there covered in junk, you know, food. I'm going to have to clean up, probably have a bear crawl in and eat me because I stink. And she's clean and neat and folded it out opposite end. So she's holding one end, reaching all the way down to the bottom of the bag and eating. And I'm like, you know what? That's some innovation right there. That's pretty smart. So it's funny to me uh, things that you learn to you learn to do when you're in the field. And, and David, I, I told David about that because I thought it was pretty funny. I'm like, hey, my wife figured out something kind of cool. And, you know, David's a he's funny, man. If, 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 for people that haven't met David Outdoor Edge, he's like that. He's like, you know, like the crazy engineer because he's just everything he does is knives or or coming up with new tools or or stuff. But he's taught me a bunch about I thought I knew a lot. I didn't know a lot about metal RG and all the stuff that he'll go off on tangents talking about, you know, but you know, like even bevels, like, you know, we'll talk and I'm like, David, man, you know, I love the fact that it's a real strong blade. That's one of the reasons I switched over and started using yours is because even on the replacement blades, unlike the razor light or, you know, to be razor pros and stuff there, it's thick. It, you know, the, the frame that holds the blade comes almost to the point. So you can wedge it. You can pry a little bit when you're doing stuff. And and it's it's really secure. You're not snapping that thing in half. But I said, man, I, I need more blades. I need more blades. You know what I mean? I said, David, I, you know, I just bought a pack from Bass Pro, but I'm burning through these things. And he said, my friend, just touch it up before you totally make it dull, before you totally lose the bevel on it. And that saved me so much. I was that guy that was in a hurry. You know, I'm in the snow or, 
you know, maybe I'm just on the side of a mountain, I'm skinning something and I'm going as fast as I can safely trying to get all the meat. But man, I'm, you know, I'm starting to wear that knife down on that second elk or, you know, maybe you're skinning two or three animals in a day and I would swap blades out. And he's like, Fred, just touch it up before, as soon as you feel it start to get a little dull, before you lose a bevel, just touch it up on the, on the ceramic. Or, you know, I usually have one of those little edge X pros, you know, the little sharpener that's super lightweight that, that they sell too. He's like, just stroke it through there a few times. It's good to go. <laughs> and dang, if he wasn't right, like I've gotten a lot, I'm, he's probably mad. I'm telling this because people won't go through as many replacement blades, but man, I can get a lot more mileage out of a replacement blade by touching that rascal up every once in a while. So it's funny how you can always learn stuff, you know, and, and, and not wearing that knife down, even on a fixed blade knife. Yeah. Don't, don't wear it down to the, you know, don't lose the bevel, keep it and just touch it up and you can get a lot more mileage out of a knife. So it's fun to me talking to guys that know what they're doing or spend time in the field. And like I did a, I, I hope you have a chance to check it out. You might, you might get a kick out of it. I know you're a Western hunter, but we, we couldn't believe how much, feedback we got i did an elk in the field and some of the guides are like you need to video that my cameraman's like man you need to video that so we videoed me taking an elk down and i think i took four quarters back straps and tenderloins you know and of course we went in and got neck meat and some other stuff after that but just to show how quickly you could take one down i did it and i think five and a half or six minutes from start to finish that's and moving. <laughs> we, dude, we put it on YouTube and it was pretty fun, but it was amazing how many people I had comment about that that were surprised that you didn't need an axe or a saw to split the pelvis or this or that. I'm like, man, I'm uh, you can man, you can buzz right through them with a three and a half inch blade knife. You don't need anything other than that, including taking the head off at the Atlas joint, uh Taping it, everything, the whole nine yards. So, you know, that lightweight stuff, traveling quick, and not only me learning from other people, but me hopefully passing on some of the things I've learned to other people. That's, and that's fun to me. Calling all elk hunters. Do you want to go on a free archery elk hunt in Colorado? Here is your chance. Outdoor Edge is giving away a free archery elk hunting trip to enter the drawing go to outdooredge.com and click on elk hunt giveaway again that is outdooredge.com and click on elk hunt giveaway now let's get back to the show yeah i i um i don't really ever you know especially now i spend a lot of time going on hunts by myself which it's not really that i don't like hunting with people it's more that i can't always find somebody to go and being that, that I'm typically filming or whatever during, during season, I kind of just have to go when I have time to go much like you with your hunts. I mean, right. Oh yeah. I go when know, I can squeeze it in. You go when you can squeeze it in. So <laughs> I, I can't always be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to bank on all these other people coming. Cause I kind of just go when I can go. And I, so I started doing and boning everything out. And, oh man, I can tell you, you know, I'm, I'm not that fast. I mean, that's moving through an elk, but it's, it's amazing. Like you said, the amount that you can get done with, uh, an outdoor edge knife and like two replacement blades. Most of the time, if the first one's sharp, then you don't even need to switch blades halfway through, say a deer. Um, but yeah, it's just like zip, zip, zip. you got it, put it in game bags, put it in the backpack and you look back over and you're like, man. 
it's all in there. Let's go. You know, and that's, that's, it, it, I, I, I got to the point, I mean, you know how it is. You get home and if you, if the meat is still on the bone, I, you know, we would cut it all off and then we would typically throw the bone away anyways. So I just got to the point where, especially cause I was usually by myself, I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to pack the bone out anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to work smarter, not harder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I agree. It's, it's amazing what, uh, it's amazing how much faster uh, a good knife will make that process and how much more enjoyable that process is. Right. Knowledge. I, I would say a sharp knife and knowledge of taking animals down. And that's, you know, David's an expert at that. And, um, you know, I would certainly never call my ex myself an expert in anything, but I've, I've got enough experience having cut up a lot of clients animals that it, it is sometimes, I'll admit, painful to watch somebody. Have you ever watched somebody gut an animal that didn't know what they were doing? And you're like, oh, my gosh, please let me do that for you. Like, you're trying not to be mean. But you're I've like, been there myself. I'm going to walk over here because I, <laughs> I can't even watch this train wreck. Like, it's, it's that bad. So we started. I'm not kidding, man. Even coyotes. You know, I'd watch guys cut holes in coyotes. And, you know, I've taught a lot of my guides how to, you know, how to case skin coyotes. Uh, you know what I mean? And how to take them down to sell the fur. But it's funny, you know, we started, I, I realized that there was a need, just like when I started out. I mean, I was a sponge, man. I, you know, and I'm still learning. You know, like I said, I'm still learning tips from David on, you know, how to keep my knife sharper longer. I'm learning, you know, tips on all kinds of stuff. You know, I'm still learning stuff on recurves and compounds and rifles and a little bit of everything. But, you know, keeping my, my ear to the ground and trying to learn from people that know more than me. But we started doing YouTube videos on my channel of skinning stuff, everything from an alligator to a turtle, to frogs, to elk and deer and caping. And just to show guys like, Hey, this may not be the best method, but it's a method and it could work for you. And here's what we do. Here's how we do it. And man, it's great. You know, I'll have guys even call up and say, Hey, Fred, that was a pretty cool way to skin a frog, but let me show you one way that's quicker because I'm a commercial frog gigger and I do, you know, 500 frogs a night. I'm like, Oh, all right. This is a guy to learn from or, right. you, know, you know, or a guy that does, you know, I'll do a snapping turtle every couple of years. Um, you know, but I'll have guys go, Oh man, that's what I do. I, you know, I do turtles every year and, and, and it's neat to learn from guys like that. I just had a guy go through some fish in Louisiana. We were down boat fishing. I've never seen a guy, Nick from midnight blue. He, we were, we were both fishing, shooting redfish, and we were shooting sheephead and drum and gar. And I've never seen a guy play a fish that quick, Zach. And I was like, <laughs> man, I was going to do like an outdoor edge tip, uh, but would you do it? Because uh, I know it's probably going to be painful for you to watch me play a fish just like it's painful for me to watch somebody gut an animal sometimes. So why don't you do that? And it's cool. It's cool to... You know, like you said, a sharp knife and some knowledge can go a long way to making a more enjoyable experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think uh, I think that was definitely well said. Um, you know, Fred, uh, it's no secret to a lot of people out there listening that uh, that archery is a huge passion of yours. Um as well as a huge passion of mine. Um, so I would, I would love to kind of dive into some archery topics and I have a couple questions kind of surrounding your North American slam and, 
Yeah, I would just, I would just love to talk archery with you. Love it. I'm, I'm game. I, I get off on tangents now and again. We've already talked about wolves and skinning and boat fishing and a little bit of everything. But let's go, man. Hit me with a question. I'll try and give you halfway short answers. All right. Well, perfect. So, uh, you know, one, I'm, I'm kind of interested what it is about, um, you know, about the traditional style of archery that has you so fixated on it as opposed to compound. And I know you shoot both. Um, but from what I understand it, the, the traditional style is just of more interest to you. So I'm just kind of curious what about it is more, more interesting to you. Man, good question. Um, it is, I, it started out because I wanted to try it. Um, and I stuck with it because it's a more efficient way of hunting to me. Um, don't get me wrong. Compounds are great. Every, you know, I like rifles, handguns. I like it all, but my favorite, I'd be lying if I, if I told you my favorite wasn't, you know, a, a recurve stick and string. Um, but a lot of it's because it's simpler. I don't have to worry about, you know, 32 Allen screws on everything from my quiver, my sights, um, my cams, my, you know, it's unreal. I mean, it doesn't matter what compound you're using, count how many set screws there are on that rascal sometime. And, you know, there's so many things that they can get whacked out of adjustment or this or that. A recurve to me is so much simpler, but I also found that for me at the distance that people are bow hunting, you know, and I'm, I'm not a long range bow hunter to me. I'd rather brag about getting close to an animal than taking a long shot at an animal. Um, you know, to me, it's cooler to go, man, I shot that, I shot that bullet 10 yards instead of, you know, man, I, you know, I, I shot him at 70, uh, you know, I'd rather get, get close. And that means I was, you know, a, a better hunter or, 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 you know, outsmarted the bull by calling better or the cow or whatever it is I'm, I'm hunting, but something about a traditional bow is just faster. It's quieter and it's quicker. And I, I'll give you a, again, I'm, I'm probably talking too long here. I'll try and make it short, but oh, you're fine. I had a guy one time shooting compound and he asked me, he's like, man, why do you like that recurve so much better? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll show you. And it was one of my hunters. And I said, let's go outside. So we had a 3d target. And I said, tell you what, how do you usually sit in a tree stand when you're hunting? He's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, you probably have your bow on a, on a bow hook. Right. And he said, yeah. I said, do you have your release hooked up? And he's like, no, no, it's just hanging. And then when I see something, I grab the bow and I hook up the release. I said, okay, well, just for fun, let's do this. I said, let's consider the eight ring on that 3D deer target a fatal shot. And let's not do the 10 and eight, you know, like a heart shot stand and, a, you know, a lungs eight. Let's just call it a dead deer or not a dead deer. So eight ring, anything inside the eight rings, a dead deer, anything outside isn't. And I said, you say go and let's shoot that deer as quick as we can. And he said, okay. So he said, go. And I drew back shot the deer in the eight ring, knocked another arrow, shot it again in the eight ring and drew back. And we shot the third arrow at about the same time. Now he hit it in the 10, but it took him one arrow in the time it took me to shoot two and almost three. So he went, I see what you mean. (laughs) So there's so many times, uh, that a traditional bow without having to, think about which pin or hooking up the release or, you know, using the range finder or doing this, you know, there's just some, there's just a lot of advantages to it. And don't get me wrong. 
I enjoy hunting with a compound too. There's times I've made shots with a compound that I could have never made with a recurve. Um, but there's also a lot of times I've made shots with a recurve I could have never made with a compound. So, you know, for me, I, I, I really enjoy it. I enjoy the simplicity. I enjoy how light it is to carry. Um, I love that I don't have to carry an extra bow with me. Uh, if I'm worried about issues, I, I just carry an extra string. <laughs> that's usually the, the only thing that could go wrong. So, you know, that's one. And, you know, the other thing is practice. You and me, uh, we were talking about this the other day. And if you don't mind, I'll share my practice regimen. Absolutely. We have time for that? And, oh, that, absolutely. And I, I was actually going to ask you, uh, and it'll tie perfectly in with your practice regimen, because I'm curious your thoughts on um, amount of practice needed to shoot a compound and be proficient as opposed to shooting a recurve and being proficient. Um, Good question. I, you know, and I think that I think that obviously once you get to a certain spot with your recurve where you've learned where you need to hold and everything like that. But if I'm brand new and I walk in there, I would, I would assume that I can pick up a compound with sights and shoot it and probably hit better with it immediately than the recurve. But once I learn the recurve much more like you are, where you are in your, um, where you are with shooting your recurve, the amount of practice required to maintain that and be good with both is probably close to the same, but I don't know. So I, I would love to, when you talk about your, your, uh, practice regimen, I would love for you to kind of, kind of die or talk about that as well. No sweat, man. Well, again, great question, Zach. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you first off, you know, man, there's generalizations, but there's never a rule. So first off, a lot of it has to do with, with who it is. Um, you know, some people are just, you know, uh, you know, better shots than others. I've seen some people that, you know, man, they pick it up immediately and they've got it. Um, so I'll, I'll use the example with a compound of my dad with his old 94, 30, 30, my dad will, wipe the dust off his old 30-30 and take one shot before deer season and he'll see that it's dead on still and he'll kill a deer every year, <laughs> you know? So he doesn't have to go out and practice that gun. He shot with it for years and years and years and years and he knows it and it throws up smooth and the muscle memory's there. Um, and a compound to me is a lot like that. Um, you know, I think once you have the basics down, once you have your, you know, muscle memory down, it's great to practice, but it's not a weapon that you really have to practice with all the time. If you've got it to where it feels natural to you and you can go out and pick it up and draw with your eyes closed and tuck into that, you know, that, that perfect set to where when you open your eye, you know, that peep sight's right where it needs to be. And, you know, the pins come up right where you want them. Um, I don't think a guy needs to practice with a compound very much. I don't with mine, you know what I mean? I, I've got a Hoyt that I'll just, it'll, it'll stay hanging up on the wall and you know, man, I'll grab that thing once, <laughs> once every two or three months or something. And I'll take maybe a couple shots with it with some friends or check it. Or if I'm going on a hunt that I think that's going to be the best thing to have, I'll, I'll take it and take a few shots, but I know it's pretty much ready to roll. Right. Um, you know, unless something slipped or adjusted or I've dropped it, um, with the recurve, however, um, I like, and even with the compound, I like one arrow practice sessions way better than multiple arrow practice sessions. Um, and I know that sounds weird and I'm not faulting anybody that wants to go out and shoot 50 arrows, but my big thing is a hunter. And that's, that's my main thing. I'm not a, you know, although I do shoot some tournaments, I'm not a hardcore tournament shooter. I enjoy 
hunting that's the main reason i i shoot a bow as as another way to you know another weapon to hunt with and to me i don't give a rat's whatever where that <laughs> second arrow goes it's my good it's save my first, thank you thank you very much it's it's the first arrow that's the only one i care about man uh, you know when i'm hunting uh the second arrow if i'm shooting a second arrow it means i've missed or something's gone horribly wrong you know like you know i'm trying to put a second arrow in an animal i've already shot so you know uh it's that first arrow when i'm stiff and i haven't stretched out and i'm you know i've been sitting in a tree stand or a ground blind or i've been stalking up a mountain or i've been crawling through the brush on an animal it's that first arrow that matters so my practice uh you know heck Yesterday, I got out and shot, uh, I think it was two arrows. I mean, I just, you know, got out, stepped out on the porch, and was like, ah, I'm going to shoot an arrow. And I may think about that arrow all day, but my practice regimen for me that I think works better for hunting is one arrow. Now, sometimes, maybe once every couple of weeks, if I have time, yeah, I may shoot, you know, 10, 20, 30 arrows. But I would tell you that over the course of the year, the vast majority of my practice is shooting one arrow. And I'll shoot at different distances. I may shoot at 10 yards one day, 30, 40, 50, whatever. Um, I'll shoot in different positions. I'll shoot standing. I've got a, you know, I've got a millennium ladder right out near my front door. I'll crawl up in that. Um, I may shoot from a chair. I may shoot kneeling. So I'll switch it up. But that one arrow practice to me most simulates a hunting situation more than anything else. So you know, and like I say, Zach, I may think about that arrow all day, uh, but it's the same with a compound. To me, you know, unless I'm having to recite pins in or change something, man, I'm going to take that bow. I'm going to pull it, pull it out, and much like my dad with that 30-30, I'm going to take one arrow, and if it's on, I'm going to go bingo, I got it. But you know, the one arrow practice to me is is the best. But I do think traditional bows, um, you know, I think better to practice a little more just to keep that uh not only the muscle memory but also that instinctive um shooting and and your you know of course your strength your muscle strength up and it doesn't take much i i, I i'm going off on another tangent but i got to tell you a quick story That's i had right. a pretty good shoulder in, shoulder injury and i'm constantly banging myself up or doing something i shouldn't do and but I, I'd gotten thrown off a horse. It was a good horse. It was just a bad rider. But he had uh, <laughs> he'd got me off, and and I'd landed on my shoulder, and I was kind of banged up. And then I did something else and pulled it, and then I was throwing hay bales, and I re-pulled it, and you know it was a you know partially torn rotator cuff. So I I backed my recurve and my compound both down to about forty pounds. Um, but my arrow was flying perfect. I knew I had you know every bit of energy I was getting was behind it. In other words, the arrow wasn't kicking. So it wasn't hitting and losing energy because it was, you know, you know, swinging left and right or up and down or porpoising it in any way. But, uh, I shot an elk on video at about 20, I think it was 24 or 25 yards. And, uh, with the recurve at 40 pounds and I didn't sever a rib completely. I cut a little bit, about a third of the rib, sheared it going in, went through both lungs, and uh, it was poking through the skin on the other side. And that's a 40-pound recurve. Right. So, you know, I tell guys, you know, man, the biggest mistake I see is a lot of guys overbowing themselves. It doesn't take it doesn't take much. And a lot of people think they need to be ready for super long-range shots. And, yes, you're going to probably get more opportunities for longer-range shots out in the West. But, again, to me, that's about being a good hunter and trying to close that gap. But 
Right. You know, even if you look at Pope and Young, the average Pope and Young buck years ago, I think it was 22 yards. And then over the past 15 years or so, it's bumped up. But I think the average distance of all the Pope and Young whitetails registered in Pope and Young, it's right at 26 yards. So, you know, that's your average. That means a lot of those were closer. Um, you know, a lot of them were a little further too, but a lot more closer. So you're not really shooting super long distances most of the time. So I try and shoot something comfortable that I can be efficient with. Yeah, it's it's really uh, interesting you bring that up because uh, I was talking with the owner of Valkyrie Archery, Brent Hahn, and he mentioned almost that exact same thing he said you know everybody wants to get a recurve and they came from shooting if they you know if they came from shooting say a 70 pound compound they naturally think that they automatically need a 70 pound recurve and he said you just don't need that he said i don't remember he says his was something at like 48 pounds or something like that and he's like if you have the recurve set up correctly and you're shooting it correctly and your arrow is tuned and you have a good arrow build he's like you will be amazed what what 40 to 50 pounds will do um because i mean i think too, you know, people get so caught up in the speed of an arrow when they shoot a compound bow and their arrow may weigh 400 grains where on the flip side, and obviously you would know way more about this than I do, but on the flip side, you know, a recurve arrow is what, 600 grains or so like, they're well, it all varies depending on your poundage, your, you know, broadhead choice and your, you know, arrow length, but yeah, yeah, you could say, you know, anywhere from 500 to 600 grains is probably a good average. Right. Exactly. And, and. You know, there's some people that shoot a heavier arrow for compounds, um, but there's also probably the vast majority shoot a much lighter arrow. And so they don't really think about the momentum and the kinetic energy that is going into uh, that that arrow is retaining by weighing so much more than their old compound arrow. <laughs> right. So. No, it's a, it's a good point. It's important people realize that. Like you said, a lot of times less is more, especially if you shoot it more accurately or, you know, spend more time, you know, whether it's shoot or when you are stiff and tired and, you know, been standing in a tree stand all day or ground blind or crawling up the side of a hill. Uh, when it comes time to draw it, you know, it's nice to be able to, to draw something that's comfortable that you can anchor with and you're not having to aim at the, you know, aim at the stars and yank the bow down or you're shaking, pulling back a recurve. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Uh, I remember watching watching people do that and just kind of cringing, like, "Oh, let, let let's let's help you not have to aim at stars to draw your bow back." <laughs> let's, right. Let's exactly. start there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, with uh, you know, uh, with your North American Slam, I mean, not only is that a huge feat to accomplish in itself, but you managed to do that with a recurve and that's just, that's, that's honestly mind boggling. Um, so I just, I just kind of had a few questions surrounding your North American slam. And the first one I had about that was what was the first animal that you harvested, uh, that started your quest for the North American slam? Well, the first one was a white tail in my teens. Uh, but, you know, I I didn't even know the Super Slam was a thing. I mean, you know, I've I've had quite a few mentors and and I guess heroes in the industry 
um, you know, of course started with my dad, but then Fred bear, you know, Fred bears field notes was something I was just like, Oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> what an, what an incredible guy and, and what a great writer. And he had an amazing way of telling a story. And it was all about the, I was as much about the animal as it was the people and the places he was at. And I loved that. And, and so, you know, it, early on as a young man, I, I was like, man, I would love over the course of my lifetime to try and, and pursue the animals that Fred Bear did in North America. I thought that'd be, I knew I'd never shoot a Bengal tiger or an elephant or some of the crazy stuff that he did, but I thought, boy, wouldn't that be neat to experience and see some of the things Fred Bear had seen, you know what I mean? Through his eyes. I think that would be really neat. Well, then in the late eighties, I was actually managing, um, I was in my early twenties. I was managing an archery shop up in Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, when Chuck Adams completed the super slam and you know, he's the one that named it the super slam. And I was like, Holy cow, that, <laughs> that is like the Everest of bow hunting. Like to me, I was like, and, and honestly, I, you know, you know, when you read, you read some of Chuck's articles, his books, and I'm like, Holy cow. I, I wondered if I was strong enough, not, not just physically, but mentally, uh, to try and harvest all those animals. And, you know, I knew I was like, man, you know, I was making $19,000 managing an archery shop and, you know, I was making another $5,000 a year selling furs, but you know, on, on my income, I was like, well, maybe if I shoot one different species every year and do them all self-guided, at least the ones that I can do, that would be so cool. So I think, and, and you'd have to check this, but at the, when I did mine, I think I'd done more self-guided than anybody ever had, but I was real proud of that. I did, you know, moose and sicka blacktail and, you know, caribou and all kinds of stuff self-guided, not because I wanted to go self-guided, but because I couldn't afford some of the fancy <laughs> guided hunts, you know, uh, you know, I was living in a one bedroom apartment with a buddy and, and uh, you know, there was no broke back going on, but we had separate beds and all that. But I mean, we were just broke and we did, we were saving all our money <laughs> to go on hunts, you know, yep. I just wanted to get that straight. But, uh, <laughs> so it was one of those deals where it was like, man, we were eating tuna fish and ramen noodles and let's save up our money and, and let's, you know, let's, let's drive, let's drive to Alaska or let's drive to Canada and go after this. And, you know, let's, 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 let's run our own bear bait up in Wyoming. And, and so it was really fun to go out and do that kind of stuff. But yeah, I would say it was Chuck Adams that gave me the, uh, you know, the whole man, you know, that's, that's some, that's a real thing. And then as luck would have it, you know, I was able to do that. I was able to get out and experience some amazing things. And then with the outfitting business, I was able to trade some hunts. So, you know, there was some hunts I went on where I'd say, Hey, uh, man, I can't afford your, uh, you know, your hunt, uh, your grizzly hunt or your brown bear hunt or your this, or that, uh, but if you ever wanted to kill an elk in Colorado, <laughs> you, know, how about, you know, how about a mountain lion? How about we do some swapping and trading? So, you know, I think I probably did the cheapest super slam out there. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it was really fun, man. It was needed. And it was, uh, it taught me a lot about myself. Uh, there were times I was as hot and as cold as I've ever been my whole life. Uh, but every bit of it was, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was awesome. That's incredible. I, I, uh, I just, I couldn't um, really, you know, fathom the amount of time and effort and energy and dedication uh, that 
that goes into something that intense along with all of the mental toughness. Cause like you, like you alluded to, it's not all about being able to walk the farthest or climb the steepest mountain or draw back, you know, and make the perfect shot. Um, if your mind doesn't stay into it, then nothing else is going to be on either. And you, you got it. I could imagine that was just, uh, you know, especially probably especially after you had just, you know, something that was just you spent all the time and then you missed or something like that. It was probably kind of like, man, I, is this really worth it or is it ever going to happen? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there was. Yeah. You know, and just the just the the mental, like you said, you know, the, the mental aspect of freezing, you know, you know, it's negative 30 degrees and I'm in an igloo trying to hunt a polar bear. What am I thinking? You know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of wish I was at home wishing I was out doing this. <laughs> you know? Like, you know, yeah. Or you're getting chewed up by mosquitoes. They're carrying you off or, you know, you got, you know, I've been involved in plane wrecks and horse wrecks and boats flipping. And, you know, I've had, all kinds of just crazy experiences where there were some of them where it was like, holy chowder, man, what am I, I gotta be nuts. Right. That's yeah. Uh, so with that, with the mental aspect, with it being tough, um, what, and you, you, you know, you may have got asked this before, but what would you say was the most challenging hunt out of the 29 animals? Oh man, every single one of them. Cause like I said, <laughs> mentally, I'm not very fit. So every one of them was a a mental challenge for me, like kind of like a math problem, according to my wife, me trying to do math is a mental challenge. But uh, yeah, you know what? It it all varies, you know, it depended on the weather and, 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 and the animal and and where I was at. So I, I will tell you that I love the ones that push, that really pushed me. Like I really enjoy the adrenaline rush and the physical challenge of, you know, being out there 14 days and, and, you know, your horseback or you got everything you, everything you have is in your backpack, you know, and, and, you know, after you flip that pair of underwear forwards and backwards six times, you're like, <laughs> ah, I think I'm going to burn these in the fire and go well natural, you know, but, you know, free falling now I'm free. No, sorry. Um, but I uh, <laughs> It's just one of those things, man, that I love the ones that really push me uh, physically, man, those, those, or the ones that I was genuinely scared, like, you know, where you pucker up and you're like, man, that grizzly bear almost ate me or that brown bear. I was pretty sure it was going to get me. Uh, you know, I've had a few, like, I've had a few of those where it was like, you know, or you're with some crazy bush pilot that's, you know, trying to do something and you're like, oh, pretty sure I'm not going to make it out of this one. Um, so I, you know. Even though there's there's times you pucker up and you couldn't get a grease BB in my butt with a hammer, I, I enjoy those too. So I, I enjoyed it all, but they were all they were all challenging, I guess, in their own way, you know. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that bow hunting is and probably will forever remain a challenge, and that is that is why yourself and myself and so many other people are so gravitated to it because. Uh, as the saying goes, if it was easy, everyone would do it and then everyone would get bored with it. Um, and that, Hey, just so you know, I don't think I've ever sung on a podcast before. I hope you like my rough, uh, Tom Petty. I did. I, I oh, absolutely good, good, good. enjoyed I just, it. That's a first. That's a first. I've never broken the song. Um, <laughs> just so you know. Well, I, I appreciate it. And I can tell you, I probably use <laughs> my that. singing or the podcast. Both. <laughs> 
both. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably put that in the intro. Check <laughs> <laughs> me up. Uh. But, but yeah, it's just, I, I, you know, that that's one of the big drives for archery for me is that every single time you step out there, it's a different experience. It's a different challenge. Uh, you know, the weather's different. The animal isn't the same. It's just always different. And that's what makes it continually to continue to be a challenge. And I don't know about you, but that's why I continue to do it. Cause there's, there's been things in life where you come along, you get good at it and you start getting good and it starts to get easy and you just are like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to do something different. And that's, you know, what, why bow hunting is just always, always interesting in my opinion. No, I'm with you. And just all the beautiful and amazing things you get to see while you're out there. I mean, whether it's a hummingbird or, a, you know, squirrel jumping over your head or a hawk grabbing a dove, whatever it is. I, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Man. I would, I'm not that guy that would get up and hike to the top of the mountain just to see a sunrise. <laughs> but if you tell me that I can possibly kill a squirrel at the top of that mountain, I got I'm going to get up and I'm yeah, and then while I'm up there, I'm going to enjoy the sunrise. There you go. So I love all the amazing things I get to see that it, it pushes me out there to to enjoy that. And I, I soak it in while I'm up there. But I, I, I'm not that guy that's like like those guys that climb all the 14ers in Colorado. I got a ton of respect for them, but I'm just not that dude. No, I would climb every single one of them twice if, if the Colorado Division of Wildlife would say, hey, Fred, you got a sheep tag for every 14er you climb. We're going to give you another sheep tag. Well, I'd be the biggest rock climber you ever saw, <laughs> but I'm not just going to go climb it to go climb it. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. Well, so the last question that I had about the super slam, at least for this, uh, podcast was what was the feeling when you completed it? You, you know, you watched, you snuck in on, uh, I, I believe the last animal was the Thule elk, you know, you watched, you snuck in and you executed the shot that you had practiced and you watched your arrow disappear behind that Thule elk. What, I mean, did it, did it feel like just another hunt or was it kind of like, holy crap, I did it. Like my dream of, uh, you know, when I was a little kid watching Fred bear do this stuff, uh, I, I did something like that too. Like what, what kind of went through your mind when all that went down? And Zach, I'm going to tell you, I've done a lot of podcasts, interviews, and, and I've never been asked that question. Really? And that's a really, that's a really good question. And it's funny to me because I remember a lot of different emotions um, and I was, I was excited. Like, you know, like, man, I, I, I really did it. Like, you know, a little bit of disbelief, like, cause I, I really, you know, I, I, I just didn't think I would ever, I didn't think I would ever do it. I didn't, you know, we, we grew up hunting public land, you know, my dad was in the military when I was young and had me young. So, you know, we never had, you know, private leases or private ground. We, you know, we grew up hunting public land. So, you know, when I was younger, that seemed as far away to me as, as going to the moon. So there was a really cool, like, wow, I did it. But there was also like uh, that evening, I can distinctly remember like, wow, like this has been such a fun, neat thing and the planning and the trying to scrape up the money or figure out where I could go next or, you know, you know, researching whether it was, you know, 
public land to go hunt or try and draw a tag or, you know, checking out guides when I had to legally go with the guide, there was a little bit of disappointment too. Like, man, you know, that I really, really wanted to do this and I've done it and it's really awesome. And of course, you know, that sense of accomplishment, but there was also a very, it, it was, man, I, I'm kind of bummed now, you know, like, yeah, you know, what, what's, you know, so yeah, there was a little bit of the, you know, wow, what's, you know, it, it, it had fixated me for so long that, uh, but yeah, there was, there was, a um, you know, there was a little bit of mixed emotion there as well. So good, good question. And I can, I can remember that, you know, very, very clearly. So, uh, yeah, interesting that you thought of that because nobody's ever, ever asked that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad. Well, Fred, I, uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out today to hop on the podcast. Uh, as I said at the beginning, as soon as we started talking archery, uh, I became Rain Man. You became Rain Man, and and oh yeah, <laughs> <we did. laughs> yeah, I get excited, man. Sorry, I get to go on. I I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm the host here. I'm supposed to shut us down, and I just wanted to keep asking questions. I mean, I I have more questions right now, but I know that if I don't stop it, I'm going to take the rest of your afternoon. My podcast is going to be way too long, and uh, Will will probably ask me why the heck I recorded such a long podcast. So I'll go ahead and I'll <laughs> shut her down now and uh we'll just have to plan on doing another one when you when you get some free time hey that sounds great buddy well hey it's great talking to you i enjoyed it and uh good luck on everything you're doing in this fall hey thanks a bunch fred and same to you uh i can't wait to follow along in your adventures for the fall and i hope that your guys's hunting season as well as your outfitting season goes extremely well well thank you sir Thank you for listening in. Be sure to like, comment, subscribe, and share. We hope to have you tuning in for the next episode.